When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before a different world came into its own, and before higher learning and dear white people critiqued the fraught relationship between black students and white students at predominantly white institutions, there was this 80s flick. Multi-talented Spike Lee's sophomore future took a critical look at historically black colleges and universities, also known as HBCUs, revealing their beauty and complexity in a decade where black faces seemed to be only an afterthought in mainstream media. So get ready to wake up as my wife and HBCU graduate herself, Tyra Williams, and I discuss School Days from 1988 on this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. So, half pint, what can I do for you? Well, I was wondering maybe we could see each other, go out to a movie, a restaurant, pop some Jiffy Pop popcorn together, you know, enjoy each other's company. Yeah, sure. That'd be nice. That sounds real good. Why don't you come by after you go over? I'm usually in at night. I was thinking soon. How soon? Like now at the Gamma Sorry. House. Sorry, I can't. We could have fun, big fun. Just give me one reason why not, just one. First of all, I don't know you from Adam. You just pop out of thin air and I'm supposed to say yes? I've always been attracted to you. I just couldn't tell you before. I was shy. But now that I've been pleasured, I'm a different person. Well, I'm not attracted to you. Besides, I don't want a physical relationship. All you guys are dogs. I've heard about you gammas. I'm not trying to dog you. Look at my face. Can a real gamma man be attracted to you? Huh? Is this some type of a joke? Did your big brother send you over here? I don't have time for children's games. You're so small, I'd probably break you in two. Hello, movie viewers and movie lovers. My name is Tim Williams, and welcome to the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. Here we talk about all the great and sometimes not so great movies from the 1980s. From blockbusters to cult classics to lesser-known treasures we discovered on cable TV or the now-defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter which 80s flick we choose for each episode, we have a lot of fun sharing memories, discussing our favorite scenes, and even learning some behind-the-scenes stories about the cast and crew along the way. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe and follow 80s Flick Flashback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. And while you're there, leave us a stellar written review and a five-star rating. You can also support the show by following us on our social media pages. Just search for 80s Flick Flashback on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And go ahead and check out our website, 80sflickflashback.com, for more great 80s content. Now, let's jump right into this episode. Thanks for listening. So welcome in everybody, uh, excited about this episode that my wife has wanted to do for a while. I'm glad to have my wife 
on the podcast uh, with us for the uh, second time. We did one yeah. a couple of years ago. Hey, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, uh, yes, uh, we are a, a multi or interracial couple. I am white <laughs> and my wife is black or African-American. You could say multiracial. We multi- don't know yeah, who we yeah. are. <laughs> so... Uh, so uh, actually, we we'd wanted to do an episode like this during February, during Black History Month, um, and we started looking at some of the movies to do. And we actually we were planning to do one on Glory, but just couldn't get it uh, all put together in time. But this was the one that she was the most excited, excited about about, <laughs> yep. about doing. So here it is. We're going to talk about School Days from 1988, uh, Spike Lee's second movie. Um, so let's jump right in. Uh, so Tyra, when did you see School Days for the very first time? I saw it when it came out, but I guess I only watched it once or twice because when we watched it again this week mm-hmm. and it opened up, I was like, oh my God, that's Larry. <laughs> 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 Is that Lars Fishburne? You know, mm-hmm. so, um, so it was really good to watch it again, of course, but, um, it brought back a whole lot of memories. So can't wait to. Jump into that part. Jump into that, yeah. Yeah, uh, I saw this on video. Uh, I remember reading about it because, of course, I was big. When this came out, I was really big into movies. Uh, Entertainment Weekly was a magazine I read pretty rarely. So I knew who Spike Lee was. I had not seen, I don't think I've ever seen She's Gotta Have It, which was his first movie. But I remember seeing the commercials for this and knowing it was, I expected it to be kind of like a more of a comedy than it kind of was in the end. And so I remember watching it and not really understanding much about it. And as we watched it again for the podcast, there were still some things in it that I didn't fully get. And we'll talk about that because it's obvious that I was not, or I am not the the main audience that Spike Lee was making this movie for. (laughs) So uh, it's okay that I don't get it or get some of the things that it was (laughs) saying because it wasn't directed at me. So, uh, but so how long had it been since you watched it before watching it for the podcast? Oh, some 20 some years, I guess. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, you know, Spike Lee's made so many movies since that. Right. One, so, right. you know, um, and I was a pretty big Spike Lee fan at the time. So because this was, you know, a black guy making movies mm-hmm. for black people to watch that black people could actually relate to. So mm-hmm. um, I was definitely a fan. So but it had been probably 20 uh, years <laughs> <laughs> yeah but yeah yeah i mean i haven't like i said i knew i hadn't seen it since i watched it on video when it came out mm-hmm. so um so it was kind of like watching it again for the first time there were certain scenes the the scenes that i kind of remembered i think i said i think that was in the trailer there were certain things that i remember i had seen a couple of times so a couple of lines and things in the movie but it was like watching it again for the first time for me so mm-hmm. So let's jump in a little bit about how the movie was made, as we do on the podcast, and we'll and we'll just we'll kind of just talk through it. So, okay. based in part on Spike Lee's experiences as a Morehouse student in the Atlanta University Center during the '70s, it is a story about undergraduates in a fraternity and sorority clashing with some of their classmates at a historically black college during homecoming weekend. It also touches upon issues of colorism, elitism, classism, political activism, hazing, groupthink female self-esteem, social mobility, and hair texture bias within the African-American community. Accurate? I would say yes. (laughs) That's a lot. Yeah. It touches on a lot. It does. Yeah, it really does. Uh, This was supposed to be the second film in Spike Lee's three-film deal with Island Pictures after She's Gotta Have It, he made in 86. 
However, Lee got a call from Island saying they no longer wanted to make the film because it was too expensive and they lost confidence in Lee and his production crew. The next day, Lee was at Columbia Pictures with David Putnam and David V. Picker for a negative pickup deal. The budget was increased to $6.5 million and the film was made. So, um, I didn't. I don't think I have it on, the, on here, but basically he made... Uh, she's got to have it for like $150,000 and it grossed like $6 million. So it made a profit. So that's why mm-hmm. Universal was like, oh, oh, we'll give you we'll give you some money. Cause, yeah, well, thank you, Universal. Right. Because, <laughs> you know, you, you're coming off a strong first movie. We think we think we can we can take a chance. We can take a chance mm-hmm. on this one. So. Uh, so she, like I said, she's got to have it, which was Lee's first movie. Uh, but he worked with cinematographer uh, Dickerson. I don't have his first name. I didn't make it in my notes. Uh, but it was his third feature film. And so some of this I'm going to go over in this is from an interview with Dickerson about working on the film. There wasn't a whole lot of behind the scenes that I could find about the movie being made. Uh, most of it came out of this kind of interview mm-hmm. uh, with Dickerson. So I'm just gonna, a, lot of, it's gonna, a lot of it is going to come from his perspective. She's Got to Have It astonished the film community in 1986 by being produced in 12 days on a total budget of $175,000. By the end of that year, the film would gross $7 million. So it wasn't off too much by my by stats, by memory. So It was a critical success and profitability of the film that persuaded Columbia to put up $6 million to finance School Days, which went into production in early March 1987. With an, such an enormous jump in film budget size, even Lee admits that many people at the time openly wondered if he and his crew could handle it. Eight weeks later, when the production ended on time, within budget, and with no reshoots, it was clear they could. Approximately 75% of the film was shot in the Atlanta University complex. Spellman, Morehouse, and Clark Atlanta University eventually revoked access to their campuses during shooting because they had concerns over how HBCUs were being depicted in the, in the film. Lee had to finish filming in the neighboring Morris Brown College to remain on schedule, according to the DVD commentary. Now, I know you went to Clark Atlanta, right? So, <clears throat> how much of it did you see in the movie? How did you recognize? I know there's one oh, part. I recognize like, a lot of yeah. it. Yeah, I mean the yard, man. It was just like, oh my gosh. And then um, one of the scenes outside the dorm, I was like, oh gosh, what dorm is that? You know. <laughs> um, and then I'm familiar with Morris Brown campus as well. I used to hang over there too. So it was just yeah. yeah so I recognized pretty much all of it. <laughs> Uh, so they also used the stage of the old Fox Theater in downtown Atlanta for a series of major theatrical numbers, which included the crowning of the homecoming queen and two song and dance numbers. In fact, most of the music springs out of situations within the story, such as the performances given at the theater. Dickerson said, There is only one number that springs out of nowhere in the manner of the old MGM musicals, and that is a number performed in a beauty salon called Straight and Nappy. The scene... And the Fox Theater number, The Sun is Rising, are both shot in the manner of 1940s Technicolor movies. Mm -hmm. He said, Spike and I looked at a lot of old musicals like West Side Story and American in Paris, Singing in the Rain, and Busby Berkeley films to see how the treatment of dance has changed since then. He said, Our journey with school days began upon reading the script, but it gained a real momentum when we attended an actual homecoming celebration at the school where we were planning to shoot. Part of our plan was to photograph the homecoming parade and football game as a kind of pre-production second unit. However, we got more out of it than spectacular footage. We experienced firsthand the moods and energies we would have to recreate for the screen. There was so much energy in the stands at the football game that when it became obvious the home team was losing, people forgot all about the game and started partying among themselves. Losing the game wasn't going to stop their homecoming celebrations. 
Also, since the real game was being played between mine and Spike's old schools and my school was winning, a new dimension was added to the cameraman-director relationship, he joked. The football game also influenced Dickerson's decision about the overall look for the film. He said the stadium became a colorful mass of people of all colors, dancing and singing in unison as if they were one entity. Uh, A similar approach was taken with the football scene where the 500 extras had to be made to look like a crowd of 5,000. He said this was all we could get because several other films were being made in Atlanta at the same time, and most of them could pay the extras more money. We shot the crowds from the stands and then shot Ossie Davis, who plays the coach. After shooting him from the sidelines, his face was so expressive, Spike felt that there was no need to photograph the game at all, so he canceled it. Which I thought was interesting. I was noticing that and watching the movie during that scene. I was like, they're not showing any of the football game. You're only getting the reactions of the stands stands and the coach. Mm -hmm. And I was like... I'm thinking as a filmmaker, that's very smart because uh, we've we've covered other football movies, uh, specifically thinking about when we uh, we did uh, all the right moves, which we talked about how they had to film that like that one football game took like three nights, you know, into the late mo- late late hours and having having people in the stands, you got to pay them that time. So mm-hmm. to not show the football game at all and just do the reactions was a smart way. To do that, where yeah, you don't you can act- depict what's going on right. just by the looks right. on people's right. faces, yeah. And this wasn't necessarily a football movie, Mm-mm. quote unquote. So it's not wasn't necess- totally necessary. But I'm sure it helped stay on budget and stay on uh, on your timeline. You know, when you had to be done. So not to mention that any um, football game at mm-hmm. HBCU, the stands are live anyway. It yeah. doesn't matter. <laughs> doesn't matter who's winning or losing because you got the chants, the songs, the dances, the. Um, the majorettes, you know, the halftime show is, mm-hmm. is always full of energy. So, mm-hmm. it, you know, forget the game. We just getting together to have fun. <laughs> <laughs> and now these messages. Coming soon to a cell phone near you. A show for all the manly men out there. Where guys talk about their favorite movies and what they can teach us about being a man. Featuring the coolest guests. Murder somebody is not like killing an ant. The most gratifying laughs. It's Tombstone, what can I say? (laughs) (laughs) A fresh take on movies like you've never heard before. This will be the thing that gets written on his proverbial tombstone. We aren't here to criticize the movies you love, but to praise them for how they apply to our lives as husbands, fathers, and really all men in general. So buckle your seatbelts, because Manly Movies is coming your way on March 31st. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast catcher. And remember, man up. (sighs) What seems to be the problem, pal? There's just so much pain in the world, so many issues, I don't think I can bear it. Well, friendo, it sounds like you could use a dose of pop culture roulette. Pop culture roulette? What's that? Some sort of pop culture themed podcast or something? That's right, sonny boy. When hope seems far, dive into some PCR! But I already get my entertainment news from Variety. Huh, that's pretty good. If you're a chucklehead, PCR gives you news you need, condensed, unfiltered, and raw, from three nerds who know a little something about something. Wow, okay, sign me up. That's the spirit. Pop Culture Roulette. New episodes every Monday, available on all major podcast directories. So one thing that Spike Lee did was he had the actors stay in separate hotels during filming. The actors playing the wannabes had better accommodations than those playing the jigaboos, which contributed to the on-camera animosity between the two camps. (laughs) 
The step show scene was the result of the animosity. According to Lee, the fight between the Jigaboos and Wannabes was real. So the fight that broke out at the end. Yeah. Now, I believe it. I'm saying this word, Jigaboos. Can, would you like to define that for this movie? And is it <laughs> acceptable for us to even say on well, this podcast? Um, for me to say on this podcast? So, I'll speak for you. <laughs> so, of course, Wannabes in essence are um, more lighter skinned uh African Americans maybe have nice hair uh, or light eyes, and so they would be considered wannabes, like they're trying to be white. Mm-hmm. Jigaboos would be more darker skinned African Americans, maybe wear their hair natural mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> and more down for the cause of being, uh, you know, black and proud to be black and not afraid to show that they are black. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you can't help it if your skin is dark either. So right. you, you can't pass, you know, that type of thing. So, yeah. um, which even in the, the song, in that, that scene, when it um, when they're in the salon, when they're talking about good and bad hair, um, you know, they even, the wannabes even reference the Jigaboos have a kitchen or the back of their hair right at the nape of their neck is, is nappy, it's hard to comb. And so that w- would reference Jigaboo. So, yeah. Yeah. But in essence, they're both derogatory terms mm-hmm. towards each other. It is. And yep. so, okay. Uh, so, <laughs> I hate to ask this question, but I'm going to. Yeah, For those right. that don't know you, would you fall under the wannabes or the... <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, on look alone, mm. I would fall under the wannabes. <laughs> um, and it's funny because having attended an HBCU... Right, right. Um, that was not Spellman. Um, <laughs> uh, you learn so much about who you are, and then when you go home and you're you're speaking, you know, you're talking about referencing Black history, Black culture, the cause. Um, I was I was I was always told often, "Girl, you want to be," you know, so <laughs> so I can relate to <laughs> being called a wannabe. Mm-hmm. Um, you're always talking that Black Power stuff. You want to be well. Not really, because and it is derogatory. Mm-hmm. But you know, your the, the the shade of your skin tone does not depict how black you are right. or are not. Right. But, right. But the movie really does dig into those uh, internal cultural issues. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. All right. So a uh, little fun fact: we we were talking about this. I, I looked this up while we were watching the movie. But uh, we're big Food Network fans. <laughs> but Alton Brown, host of Food Network's Good Eats, mm-hmm. uh, that was his first show. He's done other shows since then. He was actually the Steadicam operator for this movie, which, which I thought really was fantastic. Cool. Which I know he's from Georgia, so yeah. it makes sense that him getting into the business, he was probably doing right. you know what he what he could, and would probably he was probably cheap to get back then too. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so. Uh, but thanks to Columbia Pictures executive David V. Picker, Spike Lee got final cut rights for the film, which was very rare for any director at the time, which just goes to show. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about Spike when we get to the cast, yeah. uh, some of his background. But uh, one of the biggest things you'll notice in this movie is uh, that the film came out when A Different World, the hit TV show, was uh, was in the middle of its first season. Uh, it was also set at a fictional, historically African-American college. Mm-hmm. Jasmine Guy, Daryl Bell, and Kadeem Hardison starred on the show. Tisha Campbell appeared in two episodes as Josie Webb, an HIV-positive student. Right. So uh, all those are names that are in this movie as we're going to move into casting. So mm-hmm. Cool. All right. So as she said, Larry, 
as he went in 86, <laughs> I mean 88, Larry Fishburne as Vaughn Dapp Dunlap. Uh, but Lawrence was born in Augusta, Georgia. His mother transplanted her family to Brooklyn after his parents' divorce. There's a there's an interesting... Uh, we're going to notice a, a thing that gets repeated a lot of people that were born in Georgia that moved to New moved York. To New York. <laughs> <laughs> that are in this movie. They're all, like, they have ties to Georgia, but somehow they all end up in New York. But anyway, so Larry is the first one. So anyway, uh, at, in 1973, at the age of 12, young Lawrence won a recurring role on the daytime soap opera One Life to Live that lasted three what? seasons. Yeah. He subsequently made his film debut in the ghetto-themed Cornbread Earl and Me in 1975. Yes. good one. At 14, Francis Ford Coppola cast him in Apocalypse Now, in 1979, which filmed for two years in the Philippines, uh, which I remember I, watched, I just watched Apocalypse Now within the last year, and seeing him in that movie was like, and he looked like a kid. I was like, he couldn't have been old enough to be in the movie, and really he wasn't. He was he lied about his age to be in that movie. So, uh, But it's a 79 movie, so we won't talk about it in the 80s podcast, but a little trivia there for you. Uh, Lawrence didn't work for another year and a half, but Coppola was impressed enough with Lawrence to hire him again down the road and down the line with featured roles in Rumblefish in '83, The Cotton Club in '84, and Gardens of Stone, which came out in '87. So he was already pretty well established mm-hmm. at this point, uh, but this was a big, big, big breakout role for him. Uh, one thing that you may notice: his signature tooth gap is noticeably missing <laughs> in this movie. He had his teeth capped for this role. Wow! Yeah, which I I didn't. I thought he looked different. I think he just thought he looked younger. Mm-hmm. But I, when he, when I read that, I was like, "Oh yeah, his teeth weren't. The gap wasn't as big in this one as in other movies." So, uh, next on the list, we have a lot to cover. I'm going to try to hit these as quick as I can. Giancarlo Esposito as Julian, yes. Big Dean, brother, all my tea, <laughs> Eves. Uh, Giancarlo, a full name, Giancarlo Giuseppe Alessandro Esposito was born in Copenhagen, Denmark, the son of an Italian stagehand and carpenter from Naples, and his mother was an African-American opera and nightclub singer from Alabama. Wow. What a combo. What a combo. Uh, when he was six, his family moved to Manhattan. Esposito made his Broadway debut, debut in 1968, playing an enslaved child opposite Shirley Jones in the short-lived musical Maggie Flynn, set during the New York draft riots of 1863. He was also a member of the youthful cast of the Stephen Sodheim Harold Prince collaboration, Merrily We Roll Along, which closed with 16 performances and 56 previews in 81. Uh, during the 80s, Esposito appeared in films such as Maximum Overdrive, King of New York, and Trading Places. He also performed in TV shows such as Miami Vice and Spencer for Hire. Uh, and he also played a cadet in the 1981 movie Taps, which is a, a good movie, underrated movie we'll eventually get to. Uh, in 88, he landed his breakout role in this film, School Days. Over the next four years, he and Lee collaborated on three other movies, mm-hmm. Do the Right Thing, Mo Better Blues, and Malcolm X. Yep. But he's one of those actors, uh, like, you'll see him in things, and I forget how long of a career he's had. I mean... Right, because who knew he was that old? <laughs> right, exactly. Which I will say in this movie, like, everybody looks older than they should be in college. I mean, you know... Even Lawrence Fishburne looks right. like he's in his thirties. Uh, maybe it's the beard, uh, but they all look like they're in their late twenties, early thirties, mm-hmm. which they probably really were, and not eighteen, nineteen, twenty-year-olds. Mm-hmm. So, um, but but Esposito, like I remember when 
I, I took notice of him in Breaking Bad, the TV show that was out about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. He he's had an a big, excellent actor. Yeah, fantastic actor. And yeah. then, of course, he's been in some recent seasons of The Mandalorian. Uh, so he's definitely still working. A lot of these uh, are, are still working. Yeah. We've, we've got to see them in their early prime. So Next on the list, Tisha Campbell as Jane Toussaint. Campbell was born in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, but raised in Newark, New Jersey. Another person moving. Uh, where she attended Newark Arts High School and also... East Orange, New Jersey, where she attended Washington Academy of Music. Her mother, Mona Washington, was a nurse, talent manager, gospel singer, and vocal coach. Her father, Clifton, was a factory worker and singer as well as a chess master. Uh, Her mom was also her manager uh, and has been her manager for a long time. At age 17, she performed in the movie musical Little Shop of Horrors as Chiffon, Mm -hmm. one of the Supremes Light Girl Group Greek Chorus, along with future Martin co-star, is it Tachina? I'm going to say Tashina. it wrong. Tashina Arnold. Thank you. I'm bad with names. After graduating from the Arts High School in Newark, she moved to Hollywood where she became a star on the short-lived NBC musical comedy drama series Rags to Riches, uh, which I vaguely remember. Tyra has no recollection yeah, of that no movie. Clue that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Vanessa Williams was originally considered for the role of Jane Toussaint. However, Spike Lee was impressed with Tisha's singing in Little Shop of Horrors, so she got the part. There's also reports that Vanessa Williams turned down the role because she thought it was too controversial, which mm. I could see that mm. as well. So, uh, so, so th- <laughs> like her career was not controversial in the beginning, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> right, right. she had her own controversies yes. too, which maybe that's why she was like, eh, "I got enough stuff going on." <laughs> enough drama. <laughs> um, so, the actress Kim or Kim K Y M E as Rachel Meadows, which was Dap's girlfriend. Uh, she really did not do much. Uh, she's mostly remembered for school days. She has worked in television with uh, guest appearances on Chicago Hope, The Parkers, Frasier, NYPD Blue, and 24. Okay. But didn't really do much after this as far as like theatrical movies. So uh, Moving down the line, Joe Seneca as President Harold McPherson, which we talked about. There is a, uh, there's a Fort McPherson right. here in Atlanta. Uh, we wondered if that name mm. was because of that reference, because uh, Tyler Perry's studios uh, bought the exactly. old the old Fort McPherson, mm-hmm. which was mm-hmm. a army base that my dad worked on when I was younger. So, a lot of connections for us being at Atlanta uh, natives, or not really natives, but we live in Atlanta live here long enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Joe Seneca, before his acting career, he belonged to the R and B group. Uh, the Three Riffs, which was active from the late 40s and performed at upscale supper clubs in New York City. He was also a songwriter and had big hits with Talk to Me, sung by Little Willie John, and Break It to Me Gently, which was a smash hit by Brenda Lee in 1962 and Juice Newton in 1982. 20 years difference. In the 1982 film The Verdict, Seneca played the supporting role of Dr. Thompson, a small-town woman's hospital physician brought in by attorney Frank Galvin, played by Paul Newman. Arguably, his most well-known roles are that of bluesman Willie Brown in Crossroads with Ralph Macchio in 1986 and Dr. Meadows in The Blob in 88, the evil head of a government team sent to contain the title creature. He's also made multiple appearances on The Cosby Show as Hillman President Dr. Zachariah J. Haynes. So he mm-hmm. played uh, college president or university president in both of those. Uh, Ellen Holly as Audrey McPherson, his wife. Beginning her career on stage in the late 50s, Holly is perhaps best known for her role as Carla Gray Hall on the ABC daytime soap opera One Life to Live. She is noted as the first African-American to appear on daytime television in a leading role, which is nice. what I thought was good to keep her Very nice. uh, 
It's nice to know. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Art Evans as Cedar Cloud. Uh, one of Evans' early roles was the first victim in the John Carpenter film Christine, based on the novel by Stephen King. In 84, Evans co-starred in the all-star African-American drama A Soldier Story as the memorable brown-nosing character Wilkie. He's probably best known, which is what I remembered him from, as Leslie Barnes in the action film Die Hard 2 in 1990, uh-huh. where he played the air traffic controller tower employee at Dulles International Airport helping John McClane. His other film credits include Into the Night in 85, Fright Night in 85 as well, Jojo Dancer Your Life is Calling in 86, Ruthless People in 86, and The Mighty Quinn in 89. So he's one of those, you know, kind of character actors that uh, as soon as he was on, on when, as soon as he showed up on the screen, I recognized him immediately, but I would never know uh, that was his name. So, mm-hmm. but moving on, Ossie Davis. Good which old we, Ozzie Davis. <laughs> you were excited yes. to see as Coach Odom. Uh, which his speech before the game is hilarious. Uh, He was born on December 18, 1917 in Cogdale, Georgia. The county clerk misunderstood his mother's dialectal pronunciation of his initials RC when he was born. He thought he heard Aussie and registered him as such. The name stuck. So his name was actually R, the letter was RC Davis, but it came out as Aussie Davis. Wow. He was an actor and writer known for Do the Right Thing, Bubba Hotep, and The Client. He appeared with his wife, Ruby D in nine films, No Way Out in 1950, Gone Are the Days in 1963, The Sheriff in 71, Cool Red in 76, Roots, The Next Generations in 79, All God's Children in 1980, Do the Right Thing in 89, Jungle Fever in 91, and The Stand TV miniseries in 1994. Awesome. Ossie Davis. Mm Mm-hmm. Bill Nunn as Grady, which is that's who we kept saying. Like, we knew who this guy looked familiar. And I was right. like, I couldn't think of his name watching the movie. But Bill Nunn, as soon as I saw it, I was like, yeah, that's the guy's name. As Grady, the football player, uh, he made his, uh, this was his credited film debut in School Days. He's best known for his roles as Radio Rahim in Do the Right yes. Thing. And as Nino Brown's bodyguard, Da yeah. Da Da Man in New Jack City. when we saw him. There's like, Radio Rahim. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some of his other film credits include Lee's Mo Better Blues and He Got Game, as well as Regarding Henry, Sister Act, which is what I should have remembered mm-hmm. him from. And he was in the Spider-Man trilogy as Joseph Robbie Robertson, the first Spider-Man trilogy, because there's... How uh, many well, there's, Spider-Man there's, trilogies? There's two of them now. Uh, in the 2016 televised adaptation of A Raisin in the yeah. Sun. Bill Nunn, he passed away, uh, I think, in 2016. Mm-hmm. But I remember when he passed away, that was like a big, yeah. a big thing because people... He's such a, once again, a memorable face, a memorable memorable actor that probably didn't get a lot of the recognition that he should have or the the name recognition Mm -hmm. that he should have. Um, And this one was cool because I thought this was him, but I didn't look it up until after. But Branford Marsalis. Is that who that was? It's Jordan. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay. Because I kept looking like, who is that? Yeah. Okay. uh, If you don't know, Branford Marsalis is the eldest son of the first family of jazz, uh, born August 26, 1960. He is an established saxophonist and outspoken iconoclast. He has collaborated with the likes of Herbie Hancock, mm-hmm. Art Blakely, Terrence Blanchard, Sting, Guru, Miles Davis, Bruce Hornsby, and his brother Winton. He was the original band leader for The Tonight Show with Jay Leno for nearly three years until he walked away to return to his love of jazz music. His only other film credits included Throw Mama from the Train, a very bit part. He was an extra, or like a, in a, in a small scene in Mo Better Blues, and he was also in Eve's Bayou. Uh, but he also performed many of the saxophone solos in the score. But I know him because um, 
Mo Better Blues was a was a movie that a friend of mine in, in high school he was like you, he would like love that movie so much but he loved jazz music mm-hmm. and so he would give me cassettes of uh Branford Marsalis's music so that's why I recognized him immediately okay uh but yeah that's Mo Better Blues is another one that I haven't watched in a long time I need to go yeah, back and that. see uh Spike Lee's movies all right we're getting through it mm-hmm. you still with us okay here we go uh still some names that you know Look, I, I didn't include a lot of people, but we didn't recognize them. This is just people that we actually know they're in this movie. Uh, so, Kadeem Hardison as yes. Edge, mm-hmm. best known for his role as Dwayne Wayne on Different World. Dwayne. <laughs> <laughs> he also starred in the Disney Channel series Casey Undercover as Craig Cooper, the title character's father. Of course, Zendaya was the mm-hmm. uh, main actor in that movie. Uh, his other film credits include I'm Going to Get You Sucker in 88. Uh, same year, White Men Can't Jump in 92, and Vampire in Brooklyn in 95 with Eddie Murphy. Uh, then you got to talk about Spike Lee as Daryl Half Pint Dunlap. Half Pint. <laughs> now became a full pint. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, when he was a child, the family moved from Atlanta, where he was born, to Brooklyn. There's a second uh, Georgia to Brooklyn or New York uh, connection. His mother actually nicknamed him Spike during his childhood. That's not his uh, birth certificate name. name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but Lee enrolled in Morehouse College, uh, where he made his first student film, Last Hustle in Brooklyn. He took film courses at Clark Atlanta University and graduated with a BA in mass communication from Morehouse. He did graduate work at New York University's Tisch School of the Arts, where he earned a Master of Fine Arts in Film and Television. So... There's a lot to be said about Spike Lee. I mean, it could do Lots. almost a whole episode on the Just things that he's Spike done. Lee, yes. <laughs> uh, but, you know, love him or hate him. Uh, I can't say that I love every Spike Lee movie, but I do respect him as a director. He does definitely has a vision. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't always agree with the choices that he makes, <laughs> even in this but movie. He's an artist, but yes, but he, <laughs> he one thing about it is, you know, it's a Spike Lee movie when you watch it, yep. even if it's a like probably my favorite Spike Lee movie is Inside Job. But it's not a typical Spike Lee movie. He did that for a studio. I mean, it was that was, he made that movie to make money, basically. But it still had his stamp on it. It still has a signature. It has a signature. <laughs> and so, uh, but yeah, so. But and he was good in this. I mean, it, I think what, going back to when I saw the previews for this, they emphasized his character a lot in the previews. So I expected the movie to be more about him. And it really wasn't. And I think that's why I probably was more disappointed in the movie when I watched it the first time because I was expecting it to be about about, about, high, about Half Pint and his him, him trying to be, you know, get into to the... Pledge. Yeah, to mm-hmm. pledge. But he was really more of a side character. It was an important part of the of the story, but he didn't... But also smart for him as a director, you don't want to be the main guy. Mm-hmm. You've got other things you got to deal with. Right. Uh, he became more the main guy and do the right thing the next year so... All right, then we got Daryl M. Bell as Brig Brother X-Ray Vision. Uh, Daryl was born in Chicago, Illinois, Tyra's hometown. (laughs) It wasn't long after graduating from Syracuse University that he was cast as smooth-talking schemer Ron Johnson on A Different World, which was uh, Dwayne Wayne's best friend. Bell has also appeared in Living Single, Cosby, For Your Love, and co-starred in Homeboys to Outer Space. Those are all TV shows from the late 80s and 90s. Uh, what I did not know is that Daryl Bell and Tempest Bledsoe of Cosby Show fame have been together since 1993, what? but have never married. Wow. Yep. Wow. <laughs> uh, and then our last uh, A Different World Connection, Jasmine mm-hmm. Guy as Dina. Another really small role in this movie, but 
you recognize her as soon as you see her yes. on the screen. She began her television career with a non-speaking role as a dancer in seven episodes of the 1982 television series mm-hmm. Fame under the direction of choreographer Debbie Allen. Debbie Allen. Guy today remains best known for her starring role as Whitley Gilbert. Whitley Gilbert in the in A Different World. She wrote three episodes of the show and directed mm-hmm. one in addition to appearing in every episode. What's amazing is she started as a co-star but ended up replacing the show's original star, Lisa Bonet, who left the series. Guy was nominated for and won six consecutive NAACP Image Awards for Outstanding Lead Actress awesome. in a Comedy Series. Mm-hmm. So, And then she's still doing work today, too. Yeah. So, And then, last on the list, yes. which we have, have to mention. Have to mention. The... One Sam, and only Samuel L. Jackson. Samuel Jackson <laughs> <laughs> as leads, but in in IMDb it has leads. I guess is the name, but next to it is the local yokel is actually the name of that group <laughs> in that scene. Oh wow! Uh, won't jump much into Samuel Jackson. Just that after 1981 performance in the play A Soldier's Play, Jackson was introduced to director Spike Lee, who cast him for small roles in School Days and Do the Right Thing, which mm-hmm. helped him kind of get started. I think he was actually. I want to say his film debut was in Coming to America in 87, where he plays the robber in the one scene, but oh, yes. one of his early mm-hmm. early scenes. But another one, you could, Samuel Jackson, you, we could do an episode just on Samuel Jackson, yes. just on Spike Lee, uh, just on Lawrence Fishburne, just for the magnitude of their careers, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Esposito. And Aussie. And Aussie, yeah. So, you know, <laughs> you got a lot of heavy hitters yep. in this for sure. So, uh, any favorites in the cast? Like anybody that stood out to you as like, would be your because this is such a big, such a big cast. It's like we usually talk about favorites or anybody stood out to you as your favorite or. Um, I can't say I have a favorite. I just have a favorite scene. It's always well. We're gonna get to favorite scenes. Yeah. So, so I don't. I can't say that I really have a favorite character. Character, but I just love when they say "Big Brother Almighty." <laughs> <laughs> But um, but Big Brother Almighty really does mm-hmm. play his character well as mm-hmm. far as the leader of the fraternity and um and hazing. I mm-hmm. mean, he he does oh, yeah, and yeah. having the girlfriend and you know yeah. he, he really plays that part well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if I have a favorite character either because it 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 jumps from so many different characters. Mm-hmm. Like you said, you would you would want to say that. I mean, Lawrence Fishburne clearly is the lead like it's you're really you're primarily following his character mm-hmm. um but everybody's so complex which is cool right. too there's nobody is i mean i think big brother big brother almighty really seems to be the i wouldn't say the he's the real protagonist i mean sorry the antagonist of the film mm-hmm. uh on multiple levels right um, and and fishburne's character you know dunlap is like he wants to be understood. He feels like he's misunderstood. Right, right. You know, he just wants to be heard. <laughs> and it, yeah. He's he, and it seems like both characters are at a crossroads mm-hmm. with with themselves and their identities. Yeah. And now these messages. Comic books have been around for almost a century. 
and in the last two decades, we've finally gotten to see many of these characters brought to life in movies and on TV. On the Moving Panels podcast, we discuss movies and TV shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. Join me and my guests as we discuss both the good and the bad from Marvel, DC, and even some of the lesser-known comic book companies. Learn what is and isn't from the comics, as well as our nerdy review of the movie or show. New episodes drop every Monday, and you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. So join us for Moving Panels, and I'll see you on the other side of the page. What's up, dudes? I'm Jerry D. of Totally Rad Christmas, the podcast that talks all things Christmas in the 80s. Toys, movies, specials, music, books, fashion, and fads. If it was gnarly during Christmas in the 80s, he's got it covered. Wait, is there a lot of things to talk about for the 80s and Christmas? Well, you got the movie giants like Christmas Vacation, Scrooge, and A Christmas Story. There are TV specials like Muppet Family Christmas, Claymation Christmas Celebration, and a Garfield Christmas Special. Plus classics shown every year. You also jam out to Last Christmas, Do They Know It's Christmas, and Christmas in Hollis. But most of all, it was a time for the most bodacious, best-selling Christmas toys ever, like He-Man, G.I. Joe, Transformers, and Cabbage Patch Kids. Yes, them too. We cover them all, plus much more, including standard segments like Hap Hap Happiest Memory, Gagney with the Spoon, The Other Half of the Battle, and Chant with the Littles. So tune in to Totally Rad Christmas everywhere you get your podcasts. Turn the clock back and dive into those warm and fuzzy memories. Later, dudes! Alright, well, let's go ahead and we'll jump into favorite scenes. This is kind of what you wanted to get into. So, iconic scene, favorite scene. The hair salon, of course. Oh, yeah. Um, the song, the dance. Um, and that when you mentioned earlier um, about the, how they studied some uh, 1940s mm-hmm. like musicals and stuff. Yeah. And you mentioned West Side Story. I could see how they were depicted as two gangs. Oh, yeah. The, oh, the, definitely. The, 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 yeah, you know, especially the in that. Dance off, the, especially the in that arguments. Scene. Yeah. That, yeah, that scene. You could. Really, especially after having watched recently watched right. the new West Side Story, yeah, it's yeah. like, oh my gosh, um, you could see, you could see that being depicted. Um, that scene, of course, the football game mm-hmm, mm-hmm. scene with the dancing, the cheering, and 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 just that whole thing is such a huge part of the college experience, mm-hmm. and so. Um, which I is so cool that you know to hear the history of that and that why they didn't use any football game scenes they mm-hmm. just used the faces and expressions of everybody in the stands because you could tell what's going on with right. the game so right. you know it's just that was just really smart and that was that was really really cool the behind the scene information about that how mm-hmm. they d- came to the determination let's just do this instead of using football players in the actual right. game so, right um, that was that was really cool. Um, uh, and I guess that one scene where they're being hazed and they're 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 being hit with the paddle and how each one has, <laughs> has a their different, co- a different, a different comment. Reaction. Yes, <laughs> that is so funny, now, so hilarious. Yeah. Now there were a lot of lines and songs of this that you were saying along with the movie, <laughs> and knowing even though you've only seen it a few times. So I want to know, being at HBCU in college, how frequently referenced was this movie? Like, is this like a like when you come in freshman year, you're like if you haven't seen School Days, we're all going to sit down tonight and watch it so you can understand them. <laughs> so you get all the inside jokes. I mean, I mean, is it? Um, no, I wouldn't say. <laughs> I wouldn't say it like that. Like, like School Days. I'm being facetious. Taught the lesson. No, right, but, right. Um, but surely it's highly referenced. 
well, at least when you were there in the... So, it's not so much that school days was highly referenced. It is what was going on on campuses that the movie referenced. It's not like Spike Lee made that stuff up. Oh, yeah, right. That stuff that... That's just real actually, stuff. It's just yeah. real stuff, yeah. Gotcha. Um, like some of the fraternity chants. I mm-hmm. mean, that's just... It's just real stuff. So, okay. So, like, um, a real man is a gamma man. A gamma man is a real man. Yeah, I mean, yeah certain fraternities say similar things mm-hmm. so it's it's just it's poetic yeah, if you yeah. will um so so yeah so and some of the things at the football game is like yeah those were cheers that we did in the stands oh yeah you yeah, know, yeah that, i recognize some of know, the cheers so yeah, yeah or chants if you will yeah. so yeah um it's not like in a handbook that this is what you're gonna no, no, what no. You, you know but yeah. no i know but yeah. i'm just saying it's not so much as in a handbook or that the movie taught it to you right it's what was actually going on yeah on campuses so the movie depicts the life right. really well. Right. So. so it's a very accurate depiction of life at HBCU in the late 80s, early 90s. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it's still artistic. <laughs> oh, yeah, yes. yeah. I mean, I mean, it's not, I mean, I'm not saying it's like, it's but not yeah. documentary, but yeah, yeah. it's still, he definitely used, I mean, once again, he pulled from his own experiences. Yeah, he did. Yeah. But, uh yeah, so we'll kind of we'll talk a little bit more. We're gonna talk about the end here in a little bit. Um, kind of talk about what the movie is saying. Um, but for me, for favorite scenes, the football game, like which I already said, because of the way it was shot, I just thought that was really really cool. Um, I think. Um, I'm trying to think any other thing, any other scenes that really jumped out at me. Uh, some of the hazing scenes were funny, like the com the the comedy scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, the scene with them running to the, the local yokels, you know, the KFC, was was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, we both said, like, why why would you leave your food? I mean, you, y'all just had somebody pay for all your food and you just leave it there. I mean, at least take the... <laughs> I was with Kareem. I was like, man, we, let's grab, eat. Grab, yeah, eat food. <laughs> at, at least. least. At least put it in a bag and take it with you. Run Get out it with to the go tray. Plate. Do something. Right. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah. So... A few trivia for scene, some of the scenes, uh, and then we'll kind of we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the ending and what what the movie was really about and what it was saying. But uh, Tisha Campbell has said she had no idea what a jigaboo was prior to joining the project, uh, which I guess would make sense. She was the wannabe. Uh, <laughs> once again, I'm saying right. facetiously. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, in the DVD commentary, she also said the blonde dye damaged her hair so badly she had to cut it all out. Which mm, I'm sure I can believe that, yeah, sure, because that especially at that time, yeah. you know, hair products at, in the '80s. <laughs> uh, so Gamma Phi Gamma is a combination of two historically black fraternities, Alpha Phi Alpha and Omega Psi Psi Phi. Yeah, mm-hmm. Omega Psi Phi members are known as the dogs. Q dogs. Mm-hmm. That's where Jeff pledged, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. A friend of ours, we know. Was it? Mm-hmm. No. I know he pledged with one of them. I don't remember. I think Jeff is an alpha, but I don't quite remember. Okay. But it's okay. I just remember his tattoo. That's all I remember. Or his brand. Branding. Because he hit. Was it a dog? I don't remember. Oh. I just remember him. Anyway. I don't remember. Anyway. Uh, but Steve Harvey is a Q. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Q. Oh, Q <laughs> dog. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. now, yeah. <laughs> and their pledges used to shave their heads and eyebrows prior to becoming members. Alpha Phi Alpha colors are black and gold, and their mascot is the Sphinx. In the parade scene, the Gammas float as has an Egyptian theme. So mm-hmm. he was kind of, it was a fi- fictional college. It was a play on Mission both. College yeah. was mm-hmm. a fictional college. Yep. Even though they referenced uh, True Black College in the speech at the beginning with, right. the, with the president and the uh, board of director guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
of course, the fraternities and sororities were fake as well. So, right. so let's talk a little bit about the ending. We're going to kind of start wrapping things up. But so, as I said at the beginning, as a white man, uh, <laughs> this movie—I mean, I appreciate it for what it is, but I didn't understand what we would say the message of the movie was because it definitely is a message movie, which you can see throughout. And so we were talking about it after the movie ended, um, after we finished watching, I was like, I still don't really get the end because of course the pivotal scene for me is, which is the most, con- of course the most controversial scene is that, uh, big brother almighty tell, you know, we know he's going to break up with Jane. Mm-hmm. He tells his other brothers that he's going to break up with her, and and it's very derogatory, and right. not you know you know and that not, they can have their pick. right. They can have like it's it's a very yeah. as you see in the movie. It's the and not to say this is what all fraternities and sororities are, right? But in this depiction of them, it's that the sororities are there to serve the fraternities mm-hmm. and be very subservient to them and meet their needs and that kind mm-hmm. of a thing. So, um, so then when he now says that he's going to you know. He really kind of plays with her emotions. They have that moment where he's like, you know, you don't love me. You love the idea of, of me. Um, but that's after he has called on her to sleep with Half Pint to so prove he, mm-hmm. that he is a real gamma man because he wasn't going to let no virgin be in his fraternity, mm-hmm. which is all crazy and messed up and should not should not be. <laughs> right. uh, but not to say that that's not the kind of stuff that happens, happens right. and has happened, I'm sure. Um so that next morning when uh, Half Pint goes to his cousin, who is Dap, and tells him this happens, then Dap then goes out and starts screaming, wake up, and rings the bell. First thing in the morning, everybody comes out. Mm-hmm. I'm expecting this. I'm expecting in a, your I guess, quote unquote, typical movie format fashion, is that there would be a confrontation between mm-hmm. the two of them, between Big Brother Almighty and mm-hmm. Dap. Mm-hmm. And they would, you know, have this conversation, you know, why would you do that? Why would you treat her this way? You know, I was expecting that type of resolution, but right. that's not the resolution that's we got. That's not the resolution we got. Instead, we just got them looking at the camera and saying, wake, wake up. up. So, and so the wake up was on like multiple levels. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. Like, dude, it, wake up. Because that said, was not right. That wasn't acceptable. Right. Wake up. There's, you know, stuff going on all over this world and everybody wants to focus on a football game, a fraternity, let's party. Mm-hmm. There's things going on in this world we need to wake up and recognize. Right. Because there's multiple themes throughout the movie that you're talking about because uh, DAP is all about apartheid. Right. Anti-apartheid, which, of course, was a very big yes. issue at that time mm-hmm. with Nelson Mandela exactly. and South Africa. Uh, freeing South Africa. I, re- I mean, I remember that mm-hmm. as a as a kid. I've been in marches about it. Yeah. So I, I, yes. So so I was I recognized that reference. So there was the wake up to that, mm-hmm. and then they had the conversation with the the local yokels, and of course they had the conversation on the car ride back about are we where what they saying is true? Do we think we're better than them because mm-hmm. we're going to college? Do we are we taking jobs from other black men because we have an education? And you know those are. Real themes that right. needed to be discussed, and I think right. Spike Lee did a great job of presenting those right. those things in the conversation. And then you've got the conversation to begin with the colleges about why aren't why are HBCUs lacking in money? Why mm-hmm. don't those that have graduated from the college give back into it, like Notre Dame, right. like other mm-hmm. uh, colleges that 
our you know, our uh, Brigham Young, right. our, you know, uh, religion predominantly white colleges, predominantly white mm-hmm. college, but religious mainstream uh, mainstream schools. school mm-hmm. or no, private private universities mm-hmm. or whatever. So, um, so the wake up, I think, it was a wake up on to multiple all, on all those levels. Levels, yeah. yeah. Wake up, why? Why are we fighting each other? Right. Why are we fighting to be in a fraternity when we're all just one? Why yeah. are we fighting based on the the tone of our skin color? We're all we should all be one. We should all be to, coming together. Mm-hmm. We just wake up and stop doing this stupid stuff. Right. And you know, and it's so funny because the whole wake up, and then now, of course, it's twenty twenty two, and yeah. it's stay, stay woke. woke you know? <laughs> <laughs> Which we had that conversation after watching the movie. It's like a lot of things that they talked about in the movie. Are, are, are you yeah. here? You hear phrases and terms that we're still talking about exactly. in 2022 that have come up in the especially the last two years mm-hmm. with a lot of uh, civil unrest and and racial right. things that are in the in the spotlight. Political and this podcast is by any by no means means to be political, no. but we're just we have to still reference the world that we live in. Mm-hmm. 80s is a great time to go back, and we we you know I'm in a lot of Facebook groups. People talk about oh the good old days. I want to go back to the 80s. The 80s was great for some people, but it wasn't great for everyone. It was not right. Great for so, <laughs> um, so anyway, so just just to kind of ex, you know kind of expound on that a little bit. And so the wake up was basically all the issues addressed in the movie. Wake up, mm-hmm. yeah. So there was no need for a confrontation, although we might have wanted to see yeah, one. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like, I mean, that's, ooh, that yeah. Was, like I said, that's what I was expecting. When you don't get that, but once again, that wake up when they're looking at the screen and saying wake up. Saying it to me as a white man, that wake up isn't. I'm not gonna ref. I'm not gonna understand that call to wake up. Yeah, it was. It was (laughs) his his audience that he was striving to make that statement to was not me. Now, can I still watch the movie and enjoy it for what it is? Mm -hmm. Of course, I can. Am I gonna get all of the lessons that he's trying to teach? No, probably not. And that's okay. Yeah, because it's still art. It's still an expression. And it is. And it is Spike Lee's way of of. Of writing, that's how. It, oh yeah, it's always a little. It's always somewhat complex, and you got to think. Okay, mm-hmm. what was he saying? You know. Right. So yeah. Right. All right. Well, let's start to wrap it up. Talk about box office and critical success. So, School Days was released on February twelfth, nineteen eighty eight. It debuted at number nine at the box office, behind other new releases, Satisfaction, which came in at number eight, Action Jackson at number three, and uh-huh. Shoot to Kill at number two which is a highly underrated, great movie, Shoot to Kill, with Sidney Poitier mm. and Tom Berenger. Great action thriller. Um, the film received mixed reviews for its exploration of issues within the black community. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times noted, quote, There is no doubt in my mind that School Days, in its own way, is one of the most honest and revealing movies I've ever seen about modern, middle-class black life in America. End quote. He also noted its frank exploration of issues of discrimination within the black community related to skin tone and nature of hair. He said it was significant as a film with a, quote, completely black orientation. All of the characters, good and bad, are black, and all of the characters' references are to each other, end quote. And I think we talked about this. Is This is one of the first movies where black people were not, it wasn't a historical account of right. their history. It wasn't. Uh, a drug pusher movie it wasn't about crime this was just a a movie about a black experience all right anything else you want to say about the movie no just i mean (laughs) you know at that time it was one of my favorite movies Mm -hmm. and i I lived it a little bit so you know hey (laughs) still enjoyed it still enjoyed it cool all right well 
Uh, thank you so much for being a part of this episode. Well, thank you for having me. And you'll be back. We got a few more down the line. We're going to do uh, that are not Spike Lee movies. <laughs> right. <laughs> we got a got some other fun ones down the line. But we are going to try to do more uh, do more movies uh, that came out in the eighties uh, that are more diverse mm-hmm. in its casting. Um, so anyway. Uh, wake be sh- up. Wake up. <laughs> no, I need to wake up. Now I'm tired. Stay woke. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, make sure you follow us on Instagram, Facebook, uh, TikTok, Twitter. Still doing my TikTok series on forgotten 80s flicks. Um, so check that out. Uh, send us a voicemail, a voice message. Check out how to do that on the show notes. And send us an email. Tell us what you like, what you didn't like, what we need to cover next. Got big stuff coming up. Got some big things planned on the next couple of months. So definitely stay tuned. And... Uh, that's it. That's it. Thank you for joining us. I'm Tim Williams for the 80s Flick Flashback. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, we have a few ways for you to do just that. One way is to send us an email to movieviewspodcast at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voice message through the Anchor app. You can find the link to leave a voice message in our episode show notes. Hey, and while you're there, be sure to check out the episode show notes to find more fun facts and behind-the-scenes trivia we just weren't able to fit into today's episode. Well, that's all for now. Join us again next time for another 80s flick flashback. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go.